You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the Good morning, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, David Story. It is Saturday, August 1st, 2020, and we're broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, August 2nd, 2020, on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today, we've got a really exciting interview, Dr. Jake Grumbach from the University of Washington is going to be talking to us about his study that attempts to prove that union membership decreases racial resentment among members. We'll also be talking about the witch doctor that everyone is trusting over the entire medical establishment on coronavirus information and corporate America's complete disregard for the life of workers in chicken plants and taking your calls. All this and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We appreciate your time. Uh, If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A-L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist. That's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L, Unionist. And if you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. Uh, You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments and release them throughout the week. And we also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps, so you can see if we're on your listening platform of choice. You can go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to keep us on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the valley labor report so like i said this is an interview that i'm incredibly excited about i think it intersects really nicely with the purpose of this show and the national conversation about racism that was spurred uh, by the murder of george floyd in late may Uh, of course due to the circumstances of his death a lot of the conversation around uh, the has centered around the obvious racism in policing and the criminal justice system but of course racism exists elsewhere too and it raises the obvious question about how to work to combat that uh, in a lot of different scenarios Uh, rarely talked about in the popular discourse unfortunately is the role that labor unions can play have played and ought to play in combating racism both systemically and interpersonally. Dr. Jake Grumbach, a researcher at the University of Washington, along with his colleague Paul Freimer from Princeton, hope to not only discuss these things but prove what the effects of unions has been on racial resentment of members quantitatively. I think this is incredibly important work, and Jake, I appreciate you uh, taking your time to talk to us about this today. Absolutely. Great to be on with you guys. Thank you, thank you. So the fact that union membership uh, decreasing interpersonal racism among members, um, the fact that it decreases racial resentment, this is a phenomenon that really any organizer worth their salt could tell you that they because they've experienced it firsthand. Um, And it makes intuitive sense, uh, you know, when you're having because 
membership in a union necessitates having very hard and intimate conversations about things like pay, health care, whether to go on strike or not, and, and having these conversations often. So it makes sense that this increased personal exposure would decrease racial resentment, but you've gone a step further and attempted to put this phenomenon in hard numbers. Before we get too far into the broader conversation about racism and labor unions, I'd like to dig in a little bit on your study. Uh, so could you tell us how you're defining racial resentment, um, how you're finding the degree to which folks have this racial resentment, and uh, how you're measuring the effect that union membership plays on this? That sounds great. I think that was a great summary of the sort of issues at hand in the paper. So racial resentment is a way in surveys that social scientists use to try to detect racism in the public. And it's really actually uh, hard to find racism in the public in surveys because of what's called social desirability bias. And you can understand this, that when somebody calls you on the phone and asks you various questions, if they're asking you questions about, you know, do you believe black people are innately inferior to white people? <laughs> not many people are going to answer that. Even the ones that believe that are not going to answer it truthfully because it's embarrassing. So. Racial resentment as a measure is another way that uh, essentially asks questions whether people believe racial inequality is based on uh, uh, institutional racism, long-term racism, the legacy of slavery and segregation and beyond, or it's due to sort of personal defects, uh, laziness among black people and people of color. Um, so that's a pretty con- – there's a big debate actually in psychology, political science, and sociology, other disciplines about how to – measure racism, but that's one uh, main popular way. And then what we find, we do a lot of work statistically to try to show what, like you said, what labor organizers have known for a long time, and really also what historians and other qualitative scholars have known for a long time, which is that uh, unions have played a, a big role in producing a sort of interracial, solidarity-based labor movement and uh, we try to show this statistically, and it's really important when you do this statistically to try to show that it's actually labor unions making people less racist rather than other characteristics of them that are just uh, happen to be related to labor unions, that it's actually the labor union membership doing it. So we put in a lot of work to do that. Right, right. Yeah, uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about that work because you know I think that I think that there are some uh, variables that that people can think of that would make union members different than non union members. For example, geography. You know, there are more union members in New York and California, let's say, than in Alabama. We can also think about uh, private sector versus public sector. Um, you know, public sector workers tend to be more unionized than private sector workers, and uh, public sector the public sector also has a larger degree. Um, to my knowledge, there are more people of color working in the public sector. So, you know, like how how do you how do you um, get those confounding variables out in your study? Yeah. That's no, you should. Uh, yeah, you should come be a professor in my department. That you're asking exactly the right question. So, uh, the the point here is that so. You're exactly, I think the point's about geography, so there are more union members in uh, places where we'd maybe expect less racial resentment. Um, uh, uh, industries like teaching are more unionized, and people that become teachers tend to be, you know, interested in these sort of anti-racism issues more than the average person. But what we do is we use what's called panel data, where you look across time at the same people. So you have them before, you can ask them questions before they were labor union members, and then after, once they become labor union members, and see the change. And that protects statistically against uh, what you're calling, uh, what you're uh, suggesting, like confounders. So not only do we do things like statistically control for geography and for income and things like that, but we look at this panel data to try to see across time whether... Uh, becoming a union member changes you, and that's a, a lot more effective than trying to compare similar people, otherwise similar people who are and are not labor union members. Right, and then, and then we did a lot of work to establish that it wasn't other stories. So labor unions uh, provide people be- better job security, and labor union members get paid higher wages than non-labor union members. It could just be, oh, that people feel a little more economically comfortable when they have a solid middle-class union job than a more precarious job otherwise, but we show that it's not the income 
that's doing this. It's actually being a labor union member and being part of a labor union. Right, and you, you mentioned that you use this panel data that, that looks at people over time, and not only does that um, remove the confounding variables of geography, public sector versus private sector, but that also works to um, decrease the amount of uh, what you called um, social desirability bias, that you know a person is not going to tell you, right, that, uh, oh, yeah, I, like, I hate black people, right? No one's going to say yeah. that in a study. But, right. like, it, you know, it, it, you can measure, like, that the social desirability bias is going to be the same before and right. after a person joins the union, right? They're, like, say the social desirability bias is, like, plus one. I am, like, plus one, not a racist, uh, right? Uh, to whatever whatever right. the base, whatever you actually are, no. you add plus one to your not racist score, right? Well, if you That's have exactly an right. original uh, not racist score of two, and then when you join the union, you have a not racist score of three or four, then the delta is going to be the same whether or not you are, you know, are, are, are having this social desirability bias. And I think, so I think that that the the data that you have in, in your study and the work that you've done to reduce these biases and confounding variables is really robust and and um, laudatory. Thanks, thanks. So that's exactly like these days in the social sciences and the quantitative social sciences. Like you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, you know po- the politics of higher education in the U.S. Whether professors are too liberal or whatnot, but there are such strict rules and sort of thresholds you have to reach to demonstrate a statistical finding that's real. They, they really, you know, when you put a, a paper into a, a scientific journal and get it through peer review, they are looking for any potential reason you're actually wrong. So uh, you have to build these really, really robust demonstrations that you found something. It's a little overboard, actually, but it does show once you uh, get this through that, that what you found statistically is real. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, like you said, they talk about how, oh, you know, social science professors are very liberal, they're very loose with their studies, um, and they they just say what they want to say. And I think that, that hearing from you about the things that you're doing to reduce, d- reduce the amount of personal bias that's going in from you and reducing the amount of confounding variables that are just found naturally in the world, I think that may help people kind of understand the amount of work that actually goes in to stuff like this because there's there's real serious work and it takes a lot of time um, to, to do this kind of stuff. Exactly. No, way too much time. No, it's actually... It's, it's, uh, <laughs> how long did, the, yeah, how long did this study take you to do? So, we, you know, we wrote it over maybe uh, six months, the first real package of it, and then you send it to a journal. This was actually, like, remarkably fast uh, from my experience, and then it came back through peer review in another three months, you get reviews that say you need to change these, and we're not convinced on these things. So uh, one reviewer actually asked about right-to-work states and non-right-to-work states and thought that actually, you know, the effect of union membership might be different in non-right-to-work states where people, uh, you know, are more uh, – have more ways to just not avoid joining unions sometimes and uh but actually uh then we get additional analysis right yeah that's we're going to talk about that on the other side stay tuned Welcome back, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. Here's my co-host, David Story. On the line, we have Professor Jake Grumbach from the University of Washington. He's talking to us about his study that has um, that 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 has attempted to uh, to show quantitatively the effect on racial resentment that labor unions have on their members. And so, when we left off, you were talking about um, right to work states versus non right to work states. So, I, I just want to let you kind of flesh out that thought. Yeah, just basically in the in the social science peer review process, they make you demonstrate that it could not possibly be any other reason 
for why you're finding the statistics you're finding. One could have been right-to-work states. One could have been we have too many professionals, you know, like uh, uh, teachers and nurses unions in our sample, things like that. We did extra work in the appendices to demonstrate that was not the case, and really we're finding that labor unions make uh, workers less racially resentful, less racist, uh, more interested in uh, interracial solidarity for sort of working-class politics. Right, right. Uh, so w- when we talked uh, earlier, uh, kind of doing the debrief before the interview, you mentioned the, uh, that this, th- this study is very, like, temporally bound, right? This is not, uh, your results are not going to be true throughout all of history. And in fact, for, for people that know much at all about labor history, they know that uh, labor unions, especially the American Federation of Labor, uh, at the turn of the uh, at the turn of the 20th century, was a very racist organization. They had segregated unions, uh, white-only unions, black-only unions. Um, and they fought very hard for restrictionist immigration policies. They were very demeaning um, to to immigrants and immigrant labor, and so, uh, but but then there there um, there came a change in the labor movement with the CIO uh, and other more um, uh, interracial solidarity movements uh, like the CIO, like the IWW stuff in the twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties. So, can you talk about kind of the role that the labor movement has played um, in racial politics throughout the uh, you know twentieth and twenty first century and how it's changed? Yeah, that's exactly right. From the AFL, which was a sort of artisanal craft union uh, where uh, they really fought hard for the Chinese Exclusion Act um, uh, and were an all-white union. But that changed. And uh, by the 20s and 30s, some majority white unions like the CIO and the IWW were actually really pushing for uh, civil rights to go hand-in-hand with labor politics. And they started articulating something that go a sort of theory that goes back to at least W.E.B. Du Bois in the early 20th century. But the idea that racism is a tool of the ruling class to divide workers and the working class and prevent uh, uh, solidarity and working class power um, to get their due. So uh, by the 20s and 30s, the IWW and CIO were uh, really pushing in that direction. And then this uh, became a huge uh, phenomenon in the UAW in the 1950s and 60s under Walter Ruther, and you can see Walter Ruther marching in the in the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, March on Washington. You can see him walking in the front with uh, uh, fellow uh, um, sort of union leaders like A. Philip Randolph of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a black union. And they, that was when they knew at the time it was very clear that the labor movement was going to be a part of the civil rights movement. And they knew that, again, racism is dividing working class people um, all the way to now where the AFL-CIO is very, uh, very clearly has anti-racist messaging. Um, the leaders uh, make speeches against racism in politics and elsewhere and say, keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, we need working class solidarity um, when we're divided. Uh, by race or gender or sexual orientation or really any of these uh, sort of uh, identity or cultural dimensions, that is a tool of the powerful of the ruling class to divide us. Right. What do you think it was? Um, uh, what do you think it was that made union leaders in the rank and file um, in the the twenties and thirties when when this started uh, becoming more apparent? What do you think it was that m- m- like? What was the light bulb moment, right? Because for yeah. so long, uh, unions had, like we said, unions had played into this racial division, um, native versus immigrant worker division. And uh, so what was the light bulb moment that made them s- see that, oh, this is like not in our interests to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, to like not like immigrant workers or not like black workers. This is not in our interest. It will be more in our interest if we all work together. What was that light bulb moment? Yeah, I think there's two potential explanations in union leaders' minds. One's the more sort of strategic, cynical answer, which is still cool, which is that they saw, okay, there's an increased number of black uh, industrial workers uh, coming to, for example, northern cities in the Great Migration by the 1930s, um, and uh, the Depression was on, and uh, to keep labor unions powerful and expand their power, uh, they would... Uh, try to uh, uh, create interracial labor unions to expand their memberships. 
That's one reason. Another is this more just principle-based reason that you see uh, very clearly that uh, divisions based on race are going to hurt class politics and really just economic justice for uh, people in the U.S. period. Right, right. And you also mentioned when we were talking earlier about the role that um, that the labor movement and organized labor has played in partisan politics. And you mentioned in this during this period, we can call it like a renaissance or, um, you know, it, it wasn't like a renewing necessarily, but like this really powerful interracial solidarity movement within the within organized labor within the house of labor that that really brought people together um and in the 50s and 60s we had nearly 30 something percent of workers unionized and there and, and so there was this very strong class politics um and and that has kind of been uh, switched for something else. Can you can you tell us what that was and and how how that switch happened in in the partisan That's political right. landscape? So since the 1970s, labor union density, labor union membership has declined, you know, massively. And this was intentional, right? By you know, politicians and corporate forces really didn't want uh, workers to be organized, and they got uh, major businesses got really involved in politics by the late 70s and onwards. Um, they helped to crush labor unions, for example, in the 1980s. Uh, as labor unions uh, were uh, diminishing, then this labor power was uh, uh, less evident in politics. And what replaced it was uh, strategic on the part of some of these politicians who wanted people to not focus on labor issues, not threaten their corporate power to get paid higher wages and have better health care and job security. They wanted people to focus on cultural resentment issues and identity resentment issues. So uh, uh, after the 1980s, we saw the increase of this sort of uh, cultural backlash politics, for example, of, uh, and we see that now. So it's, it's clearer statistically, again, if you're in political science and you do these statistics, you can tell more about how somebody's going to vote based on how they feel about Colin Kaepernick than you can based on how they feel about health care and the minimum wage and uh uh, sort of uh, class policies, economic policies like that. We're in a moment where politics is overwhelmingly cultural and about cultural resentment that we really dislike certain people we see on TV, and we hope we can elect people that, you know, talk trash on those people who we dislike on TV. And that has replaced uh, sort of solidarity-based labor politics to the detriment of working-class people. And since the 70s, we've seen a huge rise of it. We've seen the middle class stagnate, um, where there's been no new wealth for the middle class, and yet the sort of billionaire class has uh, swollen its wealth, uh, you know, many times since uh, over the past generation. And that's not an accident. That was part of destroying the labor movement. Right. That, and, and, you know, I think that people don't really recognize the extent to which both of the major parties really, really do this. They, they want to talk about these cultural issues rather than talking about the bread and butter, butter issues about health care, wages, retirements, pensions, because it's so, so much easier to, like, paint Black Lives Matter on a street than it is to actually reform the police department. It's so much easier for Trump to say, uh, you know, that Kaepernick is an SOB than it is for him to do anything at all materially for his base. And so that's that's a really important thing to 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 realize when we're talking about these these types of uh, cultural versus class politics. Uh, We're going to do one more segment with Jake. This is the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. Good morning and welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host David Story. On the line, uh, we've got Professor Jake Grumbach from the University of Washington. He recently authored a study in the um, American Journal of Political Science, is that right? 
That's exactly right. Yeah, talking about uh, the effects of union membership on racial resentment among members. And uh, so we've been talking to him about that. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's very, very um, – the, the study is very robust. If you missed the first parts of the interview, you can go back and watch it on YouTube. We'll have it up uh, early this uh, early next week. And so where we left off, we were talking about um, how identity politics uh, in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has kind of replaced a sort of class politics uh, that, that the labor movement was very, um, very active in creating uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And so w- was there any other thoughts that you wanted to add to that? Yeah. No, I just thought before the break you'd summarize it really nicely. So one, one, there's a yeah, a couple things to highlight in what you said. One is that, uh, uh, yes, uh, so there's sort of two versions of identity politics going on and sort of cultural resentment politics. One is uh, at least the Democratic Party establishment really, really likes symbolic gestures about uh, uh, anti-racism, anti-homophobia, and uh sort of anti-misogyny messaging without much material backing to it. So, for example, uh, a policy like Medicare for All or uh, uh, higher minimum wage or stronger labor power for unions, that would help, uh, that would uh, certainly help uh, African Americans and other people of color in the U.S. tremendously, but those don't appear on the agenda as much as some symbolic policies sometimes. On the Republican side, you have I think Donald Trump encapsulates this best, where you, the sort of stereotype we have in our head is that his base is the white working class former union member, like mm-hmm. a, a, a you know, out-of-work coal miner, whereas uh, his policies in office have been nothing but, economically, nothing but giving red meat to the billionaire class, massive right. high-end tax cuts and other things like that. And what he uh, has done strategically really well is uh, cause people to vote based on cultural resentment and a sort of white identity politics rather than look at the policies, look at his attempts to cut health care and wages and uh, transfer a ton of money upward to the billionaire class. Right, and And you mentioned in your paper... Oh, what were you saying? Yeah, just no, the decline of labor movements is is just key in this. Right, and you mentioned in your paper that W.E.B. Du Bois uh, called... The, the the phenomenon um, of white workers being pro-slavery despite the fact that it decreased their uh, free labor, um, the white workers' labor because they're competing with free labor. Um, and and so today we, we kind of have a psychological wage where people are voting for Trump so that he can make the right people angry rather than actually make their lives materially better. I don't think it's exactly the same. It's a little different, but it's still a psychological wage. No, you're not actually – your life is point. not getting better. Uh, you're just like – you're just experiencing schadenfreude. Uh, because, <laughs> because exactly. You, like, get the, you don't get – yeah, your health care is cut and you lose your job, but at least you own the lid. Right. 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 That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, it, we're talking about this as if it's – the implication is that this is bad. It, it, it is bad that identity politics has taken over from a class politics um, that the labor movement helped to helped to invigorate in the middle, in the middle of the 20th century. And so um, – as somebody who uh, – I don't think you primarily see yourself as like a union activist. I think you primarily see yourself as, as like a researcher, an academic, uh, somebody like that. But so from – and I'm assuming you're you're in the union at the University of Washington. But as somebody who's nominally on the outside, like this isn't like what you think about day in and day out, what would you tell – labor leaders to do to reinvigorate that class politics and and try to shift the conversation from these cultural psychological wages to a to real wages to real material benefits for working people so i do think yeah uh, to some extent labor unions are doing the right thing so we uh, found as evidence sort of some of these solidarity-based trainings that unions do and some of this has declined. So the AFL-CIO used to have uh, uh, sort of larger organizer and steward trainings than they do now. Um, there's things the labor union can double down on. Uh, I love the idea of more small-D democratic unions where the rank and file has a greater voice, all of that. But again, I'm not on the ground. Uh, I have you know family history in uh, the labor movement and personally have uh, 
uh, dabbled uh, in uh, working with unions, but you're right. I'm on the outside, so I'm trying to get this. Basically, what I did was help to uh, statistically demonstrate, I think, what a lot of labor organizers knew, but uh, I'm looking for both you guys and uh, organizers on the ground for insights about sort of the next big push, but I would say for political candidates, uh, really thinking that if you are uh, interested in voting or running for office and things like that, uh, there's a tension often you hear, either focus on anti-racism or focus on class politics like unions. However, that's a false choice that actually, if you think about, it's really a, the idea of race and class together is the fundamental building blocks of sort of U.S. struggle and politics. And the labor movement combines those to build a robust sort of uh, class politics for everybody and interracial solidarity that can uh, really build a stronger middle class. That's exactly that, – that, that, that's – I completely agree with that. And you mentioned something about uh, uh, more small-D Democratic unions. And this is something that Jane McAlevey really pushes in her books. And it, and it makes a lot of sense. Look, making a union more small-D Democratic, um, where it's practic- practicable, which is in a lot of areas, uh, is really is, – is just – almost like a silver bullet for so many issues. It's a silver bullet for corruption. If members have more control over their leaders, the uh, leaders are not going to be corrupt. One of the reasons that the UAW was able to uh, become so corrupt at the top is because uh, they, the people at the top removed a lot of the uh, checks and balances the membership had on them. So if you increase democracy in unions, if you increase the ability of, of members to have a say over the way that their unions are run, then you obviously decrease decrease corruption, but uh, you're, you're going to help make the unions more um, that more of an anti-racist union because you know it's not in the interest of the workers to be racist. So um, you know that that's definitely a really good thing that I, I think that a lot of of good organizers would agree with. We've got a couple of minutes left uh, in the interview, so could you just tell us? Kind of you, you you alluded to it a little bit, but tell us what made you want to do this study. What made you want to look into yeah. this? So yeah, I've long been interested in these issues of sort of race and class together. Um, but uh, personally, so my grandfather, my mom's dad, was a, uh, a newspaper editor for black newspapers like the Michigan Chronicle and then the Chicago Defender in the mid century, and he was on sort of the labor beat and was really interested in integrating labor unions to become an interracial force for. Uh, the working and middle class in places like Chicago and Detroit. Um, uh, so that was a powerful influence. Uh, uh, moving forward, just in my childhood, growing up in a city, seeing people without health insurance, uh, uh, seeing uh, just uh, the need for thinking about race and class together, um, all the way uh, to uh, interning for the union Unite Here, which is a mostly hotel and uh, some restaurant workers unions out on the West Coast. Um, all of those uh, really informed uh, my interest in this, yeah. And again, we just do, in political science and social science, we do a tremendous amount of sort of work on uh, people's psychology and how they vote and things like that. There's not enough work quantitatively on the role of labor unions. Right, right. Yeah, well... Um Jake, I appreciate your time today. Uh, this has been a, a really, really interesting, illuminating interview about um, about the way that, that labor unions affect um, racial resentment among their members. I think that uh, I think that our audience is really going to enjoy listening to it. And like I said, if you missed part of it, uh, it's going to be on our YouTube channel. You can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report, uh, and we'll throw this segment up later. Uh, Jake, uh, any, where can folks find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Jake M. Bumback, uh, or uh, Google me, Jake Bumback, and you can, uh, yeah, say hi if you'd like. All right, um, thanks Professor, for thanks for your that. time. I appreciate it. Stay tuned. Uh, this is the Valley Labor Report. Escaping the American attraction A bait and switch that's gonna thrill you with distraction 
not so good that can't resist the satisfaction. Good morning, Tennessee Valley, and welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. You're here with David Story, and I have uh, our illustrious co-host Jacob Morrison on the phone. He's not in with us today, but he has uh, graciously called in to uh, to give a uh, a small commercial break for Means TV as well as discuss some of the uh, current topics today. Jacob, you there, brother? Take it away. You got uh, so uh, you know to set it up. We've got uh, a humongous new sponsor to the radio show today. Means Means TV, and uh, we didn't yeah. have time to get them uh, programmed into or you know recorded into the program. So you're going to do kind of a uh, impromptu live reading of their. Of yeah, their yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, we're really excited to have this new sponsor. Um, and, and so the uh, Means TV, uh, if you're tired of, like, boring, corporate, out-of-touch shows and movies that are being cranked out by, like, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, now there is an alternative. Means TV is the world's first worker-owned post-capitalist streaming service. And, and so that's right, a worker-owned streaming service with a library of post-capitalist movies, documentaries, series, and weekly original shows covering news, culture, gaming, and more. They have films like The Writer with No Hands, which is a documentary thriller about a screenwriter who disappeared in Los Angeles in the 90s, or Means Morning News, their weekly post-capitalist news show. Uh, that new show alone is enough to reason. It, it, that's reason enough to check it out. Honestly, I watch that every week. They've also got Marxist video game shows, an animated kids show about anarchist cats. Uh, they've got some content from your favorite YouTube creators like uh, The Surf, Richard Wolf. They've got some other content creators on there like The Trillbillies, Abby Martin, Street Fight Radio, and more. And the best part is that it's entirely funded by you. It's entirely funded by listeners, by viewers. There are no advertisers, no venture capital firms ever. For $10 a month, you get access to this huge library of socialist, communist, and anarchist content on Means TV with new movies and shows that are added every week. And if you can't afford that, get this. If you can't afford that, you can send them an email and they'll set you. Uh, they'll get you set up at whatever rate you can afford. Like <laughs> Netflix is not going to do that for you. Netflix is not going to you know make sure that you can get their content. They will if you want to uh, uh, have a subscription to Means TV and you can't afford ten dollars a month. They want you to be able to see their stuff and they will get you set up for whatever you can afford. It's an incredible lineup of content and now more than ever. I think it's vital to support media that reflects and empowers working people. So check out Means TV by going to means.tv on your web browser or download their app on iOS, Android, and Roku. Support entertainment for the 99%. Check out Means today. And when you do, check out with the code VALLEYLABOR. For 50% off your first month of Means TV and to let them know that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. You'll be supporting Means TV, worker-owned content for the 99%, and you'll be supporting the Valley Labor Report by showing them that we've got an audience that is interested in uh, this kind of content. So check it out. Uh, David and I are both subscribers. David has been a subscriber for a very long time. I've been a subscriber for several months now. We both enjoy the content a lot. Uh, check out with the code Valley Labor. You'll get 50% off. If you can't afford $10 a month, let them know, and they'll get you set up for whatever you can afford. Uh, just check it out, folks. It's really, really cool. It is. I, I I was so excited whenever you uh, whenever you sent me a message earlier in the week because I've been uh, – I was actually – a supporter of them during their i think it was go a uh, kickstart kickstart yeah, uh yeah, days yeah. and was sending them telling money. me about it huh i remember you telling me about yeah, it i um, mean it's um, just a great it's a great concept that it, it's it's 
viewer funded and worker owned and you know they yeah. they put content on there that uh that the average everyday working class citizen wants to see and not uh i mean not that you know i got a, i've got a subscription with netflix and hulu as well but this is more catered towards uh, our our thought process there's and i've yeah. i've been watching them from day one and it's excellent excellent material yeah so yeah and um so Back to the show, uh, we'll kind of, I'll break the fourth wall a little bit. I, I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I, I'm not in the studio right now. And I, I came in the studio earlier this week um, and recorded that interview. And, um, and, and so the segments kind of got mixed up. So apologies. I don't know, David, if you addressed that when, when we came back from the break and I just didn't hear it. No, uh, but no. apologies if that, if that interview kind of got disjointed. Uh, it played seg- it played part one, part three, part two. So, w- but the whole interview was there, um, and, and David wasn't in the studio when I recorded that interview. So, David, uh, I, I, you told me that you had some thoughts about it. Uh, so, uh, what were you thinking about that interview? Well, you know, I I'm, I cut up the audio and mixed it and overlaid the video. So the stream on the radio it got jacked up, but on our live stream it it actually played in uh in sequence so that was good but you know i had had the opportunity to to listen to it and watch it numerous times over the past week and i was it was just so exciting it it was to it was the best interview that i've seen in quite some time not 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 just because of who it was and what they were talking about but because it plays so much into our everyday thought process of uh of what we preach when we go out organizing and just the main Mm -hmm. tenet of unionism is solidarity you know and i mean it's it for us it's kind of like you said in the interview for any union organizer worth their salt they already know this but it is nice to see a a peer-reviewed research paper that has actually uh that actually points that out that you can point to and say, you know, not only are we saying this, but we've got this information to back it up. Yeah. And yeah. I think the work that, that Jake and, and Paul, Jake, uh, like I said, he, he's from the university of Washington. Paul Freimer, uh, is from Princeton. And I think this is some really valuable work that, that will show folks like, like empirically what yep. Yep. you and I, and all any other union organizer worth their salt, we already know this. We see this from experience, right? But um, but this is this is really good for kind of the skeptical, maybe liberal. There are a lot of liberal, progressive type folks that are really skeptical of unions um, that that think that that they think that unions are like racist. And uh, and there have been unions that are ra- that were racist in the past, and there are unions today, still no doubt, that have uh, some amount of systemic racism. But like what we can see with this paper is that clearly the broad trend in contemporary America since the civil rights era is that unions are um, really close to, if not the center of the struggle against racism in the United States. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah, well, even even uh, even long before the Civil Rights era, you know, and that's something that don't get talked mm-hmm. about a lot, but this past uh, week, uh, I don't know, you may have seen it before, but it was a documentary on Alabama public television you can watch online, and I was doing some research on the Battle of Blair Mountain, and I came across this documentary called Mind Wars. And the whole, the whole documentary was centered. They had several uh, current-day mind worker historians that they were interviewing. But uh, they kind of framed it as, uh, as kind of a movie. So you, you got to see some, uh, some actors in there as well, but the documentary centered around mine workers in South Virginia during that time where the owners of the company or the owners of the mine was separating workers by white folks, the, the national, national white folks that were already here, black folks. Uh, that were already here, of course, but a lot of them had come from uh, the, the the deep south, and then mm-hmm. uh, Eastern Europeans that had been brought in, and it really it it showed that that solidarity where those workers came together, 
and uh, yep. overcome overcome that. Uh, so it's not just that. Uh, it's not just that. It yeah. just happens. Since yeah, the David, civil, we're coming up rise. on the break. We're coming yeah, up on the yeah, break now. Uh, this is the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. The Dale Jackson Show. A safe space for terrible people. Weekdays, 7 to 11 a.m. Only on WVNN. Uh, Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is David Story. On the phone with us is your co-host, Jacob Morrison. Jacob, uh, you still with me? Yeah. Awesome. So to, so kind of to finish up where we had left off, we were talking about the uh, interview that you had done, and I was discussing uh, the mine wars that's on Alabama Public Television and how the the mine owners had, had separated everyone up by race and then, of course, by nationality with the Eastern Europeans, and it was their thoughts that – if they could keep everybody, because in the north, in the north, as far as like Pennsylvania and areas like that, uh, the labor union was strong. The mine workers union was strong up there, and they thought if they could keep the workers separated in different housing and areas like that, that they could overcome that solidarity and, and building the union. And what they failed to recognize was and what one of the mine workers historians pointed out in the documentary was in the mine where there's no light and everybody's covered in coal dust, you can't yeah. tell what race anybody is. And you're down there yeah. for 12 hours a day working with nobody to talk to. So they, they started these uh, conversations down in the mines and then not re- realizing when they come up, oh, this guy's a black guy or this guy's a white guy. But uh, eventually they were they uh, came together after a few years and it worked out really well. But it's a good, it's an excellent right. documentary if you hadn't seen it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. And, and, and you know, like you said, um, there has been, there has been a, a strong tradition in the labor movement of anti-racism. Um, and uh, for a long time in the history of the labor movement, that tradition was competing with a racist tradition. And um, I, think, I think that broadly... By the by, the thirties, forties, and fifties, the anti-racist tradition was beginning to win out. And by the sixties and seventies, I, I think it, it it pretty clearly is the dominant force. Um, but but like you said, like you alluded to, so from I mean, the very early stages of the labor movement, there's been a very strong anti-racist uh, tradition. Yeah, and and that is important to recognize. Yep, exactly, and and it speaks to not only what what uh, bosses or, or owners have been doing for the past several hundred years or uh, probably longer than that that we don't have recorded in history but it speaks to what's going on today and something else that we 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 should touch on is the fact that for for years as i grew up uh you know we had democrats and we had republicans not so much libertarians and 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 you know back before the last 15 20 years but the 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 notion was you elected you know the person that you thought would do the best job for for whatever you you know your thoughts were and in the past right. seems like 10 to 15 years certainly more in the past 4 to 5 years we've seen this 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 ideology coming from not only the bosses but now politicians that want to keep their power or keep empowered or get elected with this divide and conquer mentality. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we talked, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier about, uh, Tommy Turville. I'm, I'm driving home yesterday and listening to an interview on this station with Tuberville. And he, he's talking about the, the communist Democrats, the socialist Democrats, you know, and how they're they're ruining America. And if we if 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 we don't get these communists out of out of office, that that, that we just don't know what America is going to be like in the next couple yeah. of years. I just, and I'm thinking, wanna, uh, like, I'm thinking, I'm uh, thinking, I want to interject like just really quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Man, I wish Democrats were as radical as Republicans think they are. Like, I would love to have me some socialist Democrats. That Is it insane or what? I mean, and, and so I, yeah, and so I'm I'm sitting there listening to him, and 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 you know as well, you know, you'll vouch for me. I 
I am not a Republican by any stretch of the imagination, but the fact was I was willing to support uh, Senator Sessions or, or uh, b- before this runoff just for the simple fact that he is a politician. And he knows yeah. what it's going to take to help yeah. Alabama keep jobs, to bring <clears throat> to bring jobs here, unlike Tommy Tuberville. Uh, it, but as he's talking about yeah. these communist Democrats, uh, you know, just – just uh, this past year, Doug Jones, uh, let's see right here, Quorum Analytics has released a new report ranking Senator Jug- Doug Jones as among the most bipartisan members of the United States Senate. <laughs> the report analyzed yeah. the bipartisan actions taken by members of Congress so far in the 116th Congress, and Jones has, has co-sponsored this year 47% are led by a Republican. You know, and it's yeah. like, wow, well, it, yeah, it's the I same, mean, but it's it, the exact same talking points over and over again. The only way that he can defeat someone is by dividing and lying, mm-hmm. flat out lying mm-hmm. about about uh, the policies that someone else is making. And I haven't been a Doug Jones fan mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. But let's let's be no. honest here. He's not a communist. Right. Right. Yeah, if Doug Jones is a socialist, if Doug Jones is a communist, what in the heck does a centrist look like? What does a centrist look like? What does a liberal look like? What does a moderate look like? If Doug Jones is a socialist, what? I mean, it's lunacy. These people are mad. No, they're not mad. They're doing exactly what they've been doing. They're doing exactly what they've learned from the bosses over these years. Mm -hmm. Divide and conquer. Right. And and, and not only is he attacking Doug Jones, he's coming out and attacking the teachers' union as well Mm -hmm. yesterday, talking about uh, the the teachers – Need to not worry about the coronavirus. We've got to get back into school, and I have not heard him lay out one policy plan. He he no. said nothing about what are we going to do to keep the teachers safe whenever no. we force them back to school. It was th- these mm-hmm. teachers unions are just pushing back, and we can't have this. Okay, well then what 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 is your policy? Right. What what are you going to do to protect them, Mister uh-huh. Tuberville? I, I mean yeah. he's. I, it makes me sick. It makes me sick. I hope. Yeah. I mean, what it, like are they? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, like, are are they, are they supposed to just do it just like normal, like no uh, precautions at all? I mean, if if like if we really and 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 I think you know, there's a reasonable conversation about. Opening schools, because I think I think it is vitally important for children, especially young children, to be able to socialize, to be able to learn. And we have, as a society, placed so much uh, value on being able to go out to eat or being able to go out to the bar. And we have not allocated nearly enough risk in the national conversation to uh schooling i think but if we're gonna do schooling it can't be like normal we can't be having 35 40 kids in a classroom that's 300 square feet or 400 square feet i mean we've got to be radically downsizing classroom sizes and we have a teacher shortage as it is no one wants to be a teacher because the pay is not enough the benefits are not enough and you have to deal with all these crazy parents you have to deal with all these crazy kids and um and you have to deal with politicians like Tupperville. You have to deal with the bosses constantly, constantly dogging on you in the public. You've got to deal with um, you, you've got to deal with the government on your back, telling you how to teach all the time, not being able changing to teach how you know. Yeah, changing it constantly, constantly having to change your lesson plans. It's it's crazy. I mean, I can't imagine the stress that teachers are having to go through right now. And politicians, bosses, are just throwing them under the bus. They're trying to divide the, the rest of us against teachers. And for what? So they can get elected. So they can destroy teachers' unions. So they can destroy worker power, one of the, the strongest bases of worker power in America right now. And, and so, that they can, so that they can privatize schools, so that they can send more money to themselves and their billionaire donors. It's sickening. Yep, yep. And, and, and what we see... In Tuberville is exactly what we 
not Democrats, not Republicans, not independents, all of us should be worried about is this instead of coming out with a policy that he may have talked to with Jones about, or he may have talked to Mm -hmm. with, with Senator Shelby about, we've got him just sitting here making inflammatory comments, attacking everybody, because this is what people buy into these days. They love this reality show politics to where we just Mm -hmm. tear everybody down and we, we have, we don't accomplish anything. I mean, yeah. and, and and like you said, the privatization, you know, to speak of the privatization, we've got Trump constantly attacking the, the U.S. Postal Service over the past, uh, I mean, <clears throat> basically since he's come into office, but certainly over the past year, we've got this new appointee in May, uh, Lewis, whatever his name is, Lewis. Uh, Lewis DeJoy. Yeah, there you go, Lewis DeJoy. You know, and, and I so I done a little bit of research because I knew you weren't going to be on here, so I was going to have to uh, actually, I guess, do my job for once. I apologize, <laughs> but so I done a little bit of research, and would you would you believe that uh, that they have raked they they went out and done a poll of all Americans of, of, of a, a large swath of Americans. Who do you think ranked the number one most favorable favorable business in america i mean i would have thought amazon to be completely honest with you amazon came in Uh second google came in third the u.s postal service is the most loved business in america and we're doing everything we can to destroy it to privatize it and 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 when when we talk about privatizing we need to talk about costs because right now Mm -hmm. i looked at the costs of what a uh, the average postal worker in America makes, it's eighteen dollars and thirty five cents an hour for a rural carrier. For a mail carrier in the city, the average is seventeen dollars and forty eight cents an hour. Now compare that to FedEx, who you know is one of their main customers. I'm going to assume if we privatize USPS that we've got to have somebody to come in and do it. Uh, you know, pick right. up some of that load. Their average pay is nineteen dollars an hour, so it's not that much more. But you know what it costs to mail a letter with FedEx? Nine dollars and five cents. You know what it costs for us to mail a letter? Fifty-five cents with the USPS. Folks, we'll be right back. We got one more segment. We appreciate you listening in. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Good morning and welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is David Story. We have Jacob Morrison on the phone calling in. He's out uh, on a mission from God today. And uh, have you ran into any of those Illinois Nazis yet, Jacob? Have I ran into any who? Illinois Nazis. I have not. it's It's a very... It's a very old, old, anybody my age would get that, and they're probably out there laughing in their car right now. But my daughters get it because I forced them to watch the movie. Uh, So before Uh, before we went into the commercial break, we were talking about the privatization of the U.S. Postal Service and how Trump and all of his cronies are wanting to privatize that. And we were talking about the average wages of the workers, the average wage of of the mail carrier, roughly $18 an hour. The average carrier of FedEx, roughly $19 an hour, a little bit more, but a dollar an hour don't make up for 55 Mm -hmm. cents to mail a letter compared to almost $10 to mail a letter. So where does all that extra Mm -hmm. money go? Uh, CEO of FedEx, Fred Smith, made $15.96 million in total compensation oh, last year. CIO, Rob Carter, made $5.96 million. CFO, Alan Graff, made $5.34 million. I mean, so you can see where the money goes, yeah. and you can see why they want to privatize it. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with the cost to the taxpayers. It has to do with shifting yeah. that profit from... <laughs> The, and and regardless of what anybody says, I've I done the research. 
the U.S. Postal Service does not take federal taxes. They are completely self-sustained. Yeah. So the, it, yeah. uh, what they're going to do is shift that profit over to a company like FedEx or one of the others that may uh, upstart and, and get a lot of people rich, and we're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. We're going to go yeah, from paying the, 55 cents to $10 to mail a letter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the, the thing that – so it, you mentioned Louis DeJoy, and you didn't mention – how he got appointed to uh, Postmaster General. He's a Trump donor. He has no experience in Postal Service, no experience even in FedEx or any of these other postal carrier companies, these private companies. He is just some bigwig Trump donor who was one of the the biggest Trump donors in 2016, and and now he's got this big cabinet position. That's his only qualification for this job. And, and and when people talk about when when conservative free market fundamentalist types when they talk about privatization they tell you it's to bring down costs to allow innovation to uh, allow competition which makes the cost go down the the quality of the services go up but that's not really their goal if that was their goal here's what they would do they would allow the postal service to innovate they would allow the postal service to do the things that they need to do instead what they have done to the postal service and what they're trying to do to the postal service is put it in a straitjacket so that it can't make money for decades it was completely self-sustaining on uh uh, inflation adjusted about 50 cents per letter it was completely self-sustaining until in 2006 they passed a law that made them fund health care and retirement for people so far in advance. 75 years in advance. 75 years in advance. Like, they have got to pay for the retirement of workers who are not even born yet. Yep. No, other, uh, no other private company has to do this. No other government agency has to do this. The U.S. Postal Service has to do that. Additionally, the U.S. Postal Service is contractually, by law, not allowed to branch off into other services. They are not allowed to do banking like they did in the 60s. They are not allowed to do any other thing that would generate revenue for the Postal Service besides carrying packages. If you want uh, things to be able to innovate, then allow this thing to innovate. They're not, they don't want that. What the, and, and, and then, this Louis DeJoy, he has been... He has been putting more and more and more onerous regulations. Yep. They say that they hate regulations. He's been putting more and more and more regulations on postal service on postal workers that make it harder for them to do their job. He is eliminating overtime. He is making the, he is making it to where they can't sort letters in the morning. What they're and that's trying to delay. do. What they're trying to do is make it to where the American public thinks that the U.S. Postal Service aren't doing their job. When the fact of the matter is what they're doing is tying their hands. That's exactly right. They're trying to make – because, like you said, the Postal Service is the number one rated uh, uh, entity – in America, what they have to, and so they can't privatize it right now because everybody's like, oh, well, it works so well. Why would we want to change it? What they have to do is they have to make the service terrible so that they can privatize it. They have to make the service bad so that people look at it and they say, oh, this corporate bureaucracy, this, uh, this government bureaucracy, government doesn't work. They have to make government not work so that they can hand it over to these private uh, money blood-sucking corporations so that they can uh, bring down workers' uh, compensation packages and put more money in the hands of billionaire and millionaire owners. You mentioned that the dollar, that, 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 that hourly wage for FedEx is a dollar an hour or more. I would be willing to bet money. I would be willing to bet a significant amount of money that the entire compensation package yeah. for U.S. postal workers is higher when you count their oh, retirement, yeah. their yeah. health care, their benefits, and everything like that. Because probably the FedEx folks, that is like basically all, all they get is their hourly wage. So what they want to do is they want to move money from the workers' wages. They want to uh, make people pay more for the product so they can put more money in the oligarch's pockets. That is the grift. That, like... Folks, you got to realize they don't care about you. They don't care about the efficiency of services. They don't care about making things less costly for you. They want to put more money in their pockets. And once it's gone, it's gone. You can you yes. can guarantee that. Once they've destroyed it, there's never any coming back. 
I mean, yeah. I, I don't use a whole lot of mail. Not a lot of us use a whole lot of mail today. But when I have to mail a bill away to somebody, you know, far away, it's 55 cents. Go yeah. to, uh, do you really want to be tied to FedEx and, and have to <clears throat> drive up there and pay $10, $20 uh, to mail a small package to your family across the other side of the country? I mean, it's insanity. Jacob, we got about it's, 20 seconds, brother. Take us out. Folks, save the Postal Service. Look up online. See how see what you can do there. Petitions that you can sign. And they're trying this with the TVA, too, folks. Go back and watch our interview with Gay Henson, the Valleywide president of the, of the TVA Engineering Association, and Paul Sheeran, their international president. Go back and watch that interview. We've got in the description uh, a... a um, a link to a petition that you can sign to try to save the TVA, save the Postal Service. Folks, these workers are like angels, okay? We have got to do everything that we can to save the Postal Service, save the TVA, because once it's turned over to private hands, it's not going to be good. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, This has been the Valley Labor Report, and we will see you next week.